Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. It was only about six months ago that we had the joy of diving deep into this rich passage. And I know for me, the glory of looking at the resurrection still resonates with me to this day with um, just the gems of wisdom the Lord gives us from this passage. If you remember, it's really a passage that's all framed, obviously, against the backdrop of death, a death which is, for all of us, a common experience, a common uh, observation and uh, factor in our life. We think about it, we have to grapple with it, it becomes a a part of our everyday existence if we're dealing with health care and the overall decay and deterioration of our bodies, whether it's ultimate and final or whether it's just the gradual process against which we are fighting all the time, we're dealing with death. And yet we, we know that this has not always been God's plan. God didn't design life to end with death. You remember in the very beginning, He created man and woman. He created Adam and Eve in the garden, and He placed them there in a world without death. He told them to be fruitful and multiply a world without death. He intended them to have descendants and children who never die. He intended mankind to dwell in His presence forever in bodies, in their bodily forms. We know, of course, things didn't turn out that way. Men and women fell into sin. They eventually, because of that, faced the ultimate penalty of sin, which is death. This is what God had told them in the very beginning. He said, in the day that you sin, he says, dying you will die, or you will ultimately die, however you translate that. But this was the penalty that was spelled out. It was, of course, first of all, spiritual death. But along with that, in a very real way, it was physical death. They went from being people who were going to live forever in their bodies to people who were suddenly facing the deterioration and the decay that comes to all of us. And since that time, death has become the reality of life for all of us, the ultimate end of life. Of course, the story doesn't end there because God doesn't accept defeat. He doesn't accept defeat of his original design. And so he set in motion a plan, a plan he had laid out really before he ever created the world, a plan to restore his original design, a a plan to undo the ravages of sin, a plan to reverse the curse of sin, a plan to do away with death. And, once again, a plan that would have men and women living forever in His presence in their bodies. This plan of salvation doesn't involve some sort of compromise, some sort of adjustment, some sort of concession on behalf of God. It's, it's not as if God created mankind with this intent that we have some sort of bodily existence in his presence and then sin comes along and sort of messes up his plan and and all that possibility 
and brings an end to human bodies. And so now, if God wants us to be with him, it has to be without our bodies. That somehow God has to come up with a plan of salvation that doesn't include that. Some half measure that might save our souls, but has to abandon our bodies to death. No, God's plan of salvation is a complete plan. A complete restoration of not only our bodies, but the entire world the way He originally designed it. God's plan of salvation is no half measure. It's no concession to the schemes of Satan. And any kind of salvation that doesn't include that, any kind of salvation that doesn't include a complete restoration, a complete undoing of all those penalties of sin, any, any uh, plan of salvation that involves simply the soul, but not the body, is in fact a compromise salvation. In fact, it's no salvation at all. Because a salvation without a complete restoration of the body would mean that the ultimate penalty of sin is still in effect. And if the ultimate penalty of sin is still in effect then sin is still in effect. That the, that the guilt of sin and the punishment of sin and all of those things are still realities for us. In other words, at least from a biblical standpoint, from the standpoint of the theology of Scripture, you cannot undo sin without undoing death. You cannot undo sin without, without having a restoration of the body. And this is really Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians 15. This is really what he's aiming at. That that because death is a part of sin, because death is the penalty of sin, you can't undo sin without undoing death. And if you undo death, then that obviously means some sort of restoration, some sort of resurrection of our physical bodies. In fact, at the very end of the chapter, Paul says... Essentially this, in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's whole point in arguing in this chapter is that those who want to embrace some concept of salvation that doesn't involve a resurrection throw out not just the idea of a future body, they throw out salvation itself. This was, however, what the Corinthians were apparently trying to do If you see in verse 12, this becomes very plain. Paul says to them, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is apparently what some of them were saying. 
This is apparently what some of them were believing. They had embraced some notion of salvation that did not involve a body. Some notion of salvation that might have involved some spiritual existence, some non-material existence, some sort of ethereal existence where you floated with God among the clouds, but you weren't necessarily in this form, in your bodily form, in the life to come. Well, Paul brings out the implications of that, beginning in the next verse, in verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it's true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. The primary premise is right there. If death is the primary penalty of sin. Then a salvation that leaves your body dead. Is a salvation that doesn't defeat sin. Plain and simple. If there's no resurrection. Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised. Death ultimately defeated him. If death ultimately defeated him, then he did not conquer sin. And if he did not conquer sin, then there is no salvation. And sin is still reigning. Now, some of the Corinthians, as we said, apparently believe just that. Having accommodated themselves to the world having embraced this sort of uh, very nondescript and uh, nebulous idea of the afterlife, they had embraced no doubt what was around them because in the Roman culture, people certainly didn't deny the afterlife. But in their sophisticated forms of philosophy, they had dreamt up a notion of the afterlife that didn't involve anything physical. In fact, they associated the physical with Something bad, something negative. They associated the body with something corrupt. And so everything they constructed about the afterlife involved an escape or a separation from the physical and an assumption, if you will, or an ascension into uh, some non material form, some sort of ghostly form. Many Greek philosophers believe that we would be transformed when we die into some sort of light or absorbed back into the stars. Plutarch, for example, speaks about this. He says, let us therefore take the safe course and grant, he says, with a philosopher named Pindar, that our bodies all must follow death's supreme behest. But something living still survives, an image of life, For this alone comes from the gods. Yes, it comes from them, and to them it returns, not with its body, but only when it is most completely separated and set free from the body and becomes altogether pure, fleshless, and undefiled. For a dry soul is best, according to Heraclitus. 
And it flies from the body as lightning flashes from a cloud. This was the notion that's out there in Greek culture, in Roman culture, in the culture of the Corinthians day. This is what people tended to believe. They tended to embrace this notion of an afterlife that didn't have any kind of bodily material existence because for them this was better. You know, we haven't really gotten that far beyond Greek philosophy. In fact, sadly, many Christians have in fact constructed their ideas of the afterlife from Greek philosophy more than from the Scripture. But if you look into the Scripture, the, the, the uh, paradigm is clear. God has always designed us to be with Him in material, physical bodies. You believe this, it might bring ridicule, it might bring scorn. It certainly did in the early days when Paul, you remember, tried to preach this message to the philosophers at Athens. Acts 17.32 says some began to sneer at him. I mean, they... They uh, sneered because that idea was so ridiculous to them in light of their common experience. In light of anything they had ever known, every person who had ever died remained dead. And not only that, they had observed and watched those bodies decay and deteriorate. They had through their own observation, noticed that things that once were living and died would go back to the dust of the ground. They would, they would waste away, whether it's animals or humans. And so the whole notion of a bodily resurrection, they would scoff at. For the same reason that people scoff today. If you want to tell them that there is a resurrection from the dead, if you want to tell them that your Savior was bodily resurrected from the dead... They will scoff at you as a believer in some sort of myth. People regularly would label the resurrection story of Christ as a mythological imposition on the scripture. As something that was dreamt up, created out of a despondent group of disciples, but something that doesn't correspond with what we now know because of our scientific advancement. Because in their minds, general observation has proven and continues to prove that people who die stay dead. The problem with that is that all the people that you know who have died were sinners. Every person that you could ever observe who died, died with sins. They died in a sinful body. They died as something less than a perfect creation. The only person whoever we we ever know who had no sin was Jesus Christ. And the Bible says he was not defeated by death. He did not face the ultimate penalty of sin. 
This is the gospel. This is the message that was proclaimed by the apostles. This is the message that confronts the world. This is the message that confronts your disbelief. That although you may think that death is final and although you might construct some form of the afterlife that somehow allows you to accept your naturalistic and scientific observation that the only pathway to any kind of meaningful afterlife is a pathway that defeats sin. And a pathway that defeats sin is a pathway that has to defeat death. And so a pathway that defeats death is a pathway that has a resurrected Savior who resurrects all of us one day in the final victory over sin. This is the demand of faith. This is the demand of the gospel. So the scripture says that if you believe, uh, that you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord... And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. That's the only way. That's the only way to have your sins forgiven. Is for you to embrace that God raised the Savior from the dead. Now this is Paul's whole argument here. This is what he's really getting at particularly in verses 12 through verse uh, 19, a number of detrimental things if you try to deny that. A number of uh, what we would call uh, uh, forfeitures. Don't know where our slides are going there, but uh, you'll just maybe listen closely. Paul sales tells us here four Tragic consequences, really, if a believer denies the resurrection. Once you do away with that, you do away with so much. You reject the bodily resurrection of Christ. If Christ, as he says in verse 14, has not been raised from the dead, there are four tragic consequences. First of all, no credibility for the Scriptures. I mean, right off the bat, you discredit the Scriptures. Because you discredit those who wrote the scripture. This is what Paul says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Or you might even plug in there, our message is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it's true, the dead are not raised. In other words, to say the apostles are liars about the resurrection is to imply that they're liars in general. It's to imply an enormous collusion in deception on behalf of these men. And if that's the case, that it implies that the entire foundation of the church was built on the foundation of a bunch of liars, that their message Their overall preaching is in vain because their primary message about the resurrection is in vain. We've noted this a number of times that this was the central proposition of the apostolic preaching. That this was the, 
the, the central demand on people to believe that Christ has been raised from the dead. You go through the book of Acts, you look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. You go to Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10 and 13 and 17. And almost every recorded sermon that we have in the book of Acts centers on a call of demand to believe in a resurrected Savior. This was apostolic preaching. This was New Testament preaching, along with calls and and, uh, recognition of our own sinfulness and the need to repent, right along with that was the validation, the apologetic affirmation of a resurrected Savior, of one who himself, who could offer a a sacrifice for sins because he himself had defeated sin and death. This is what the apostles preached. This is what he. This is what the apostles uh, devoted themselves to, and this is therefore what the church devoted themselves to. This is, by the way, the ones who wrote the New Testament documents, the ones that define our gospel and everything that we are. This is the ones we read in Acts two forty two that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You realize that we don't have anything that's been passed down to us that was written by Christ. I mean, you open up your you open up your Bibles and you see letters in red, and you might assume that those are the uh, the, the words that maybe Christ Himself wrote, but that's not the case. Even the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that come down to us, were written by the hands of apostles. And so whenever we are devoting ourselves to the Scripture, we are devoting ourselves to apostolic teaching. It is apostolic teaching that lays the foundation of the church. You say, I thought Christ was the foundation. Well, the Scripture would tell you He's the cornerstone. But Acts 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You see, you undermine the apostles... You undermine the foundation. You undermine the apostles. You have no church. You have have jettisoned your one way of understanding anything that was taught by Christ. Because it was the apostles who became the primary witnesses to everything we know about him. And so this is what Paul says, look, if you want to do away with the resurrection, if you want to have some notion of life after death that doesn't involve a resurrected Savior, if you want to have some notion of life after death that doesn't involve a resurrected body, if you want to have some notion of life after death that doesn't have death itself being defeated, then you're not only embracing maybe some... philosophical explanation of life. You're doing away with the apostles. You're doing away with the scripture. You're doing away with the church. You make them, as Paul says in verse 15, as those who testify against God. These are now anti-God people. 
these apostles who testified not only to the resurrection, but as Paul said back in verse 11, they all testified to him and they testified that they all saw him at the same time. Now, this would have been an enormous act of collusion, which would have certainly been premeditated and well-coordinated and therefore very willful. These would have been willful, uh, devious, manipulative liars And you would have to believe that it would have been these men with their willful and devious and manipulation in deception with a complete lack of moral consciousness who then produced a movement and a following of people that established the strongest moral force that the world has ever known, which is Christianity. It's a tall order. But it's what you do if you deny the resurrection. Not only that, Paul states the issue more clearly in verse 16. That a denial of the physical resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, has a second consequence, and that is no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If you lose the resurrection, you lose the benefit of Christ's death. If you believe your sins are forgiven for any other reason than a resurrected Savior or without a resurrected Savior, it is a vain belief. It doesn't work. In fact, Romans, if you have your Bibles, flip to one book prior to 1 Corinthians and look at the book of Romans. Paul makes this statement in Romans 4, 24. Actually, in verse 23, he speaks about this statement in the Old Testament that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, that is Abraham's sake, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And listen to what he says in verse 25. Who was delivered up for our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. Paul's making two very significant statements there in verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions, and he was raised for our justification. Or to paraphrase that, Jesus had to die Because of your sins. And he had to be raised. For you to be justified. That's what he's saying. What he's really giving us there. Are the two sides of the cross. One being the defeat. And one being the victory. One being the 
punishment and one being the, the, uh, the, the overcoming, if you will. And he's saying that because every one of us has sins and sin demands punishment and the punishment being death, there had to be death. And you and I face that penalty and you and I pay that punishment if we do not have Christ. We face death. It is an eternal death and it's a death cast out from the presence of God. But the good news of the cross is that Jesus Christ, who didn't deserve to die because he had no sins, faced the penalty of death. He was delivered up because of transgressions, but transgressions that are not his own. He was delivered up for your transgressions, for your sins. But it didn't end there because death itself was defeated at the cross, because the sacrifice of Christ taking the place of all those who would ever believe in Him completely eliminated the penalty of sin. And so Christ, who had no sins of His own, couldn't be held by the grave. He couldn't be he couldn't be held by death. And he was raised up as a testimony to the defeat of sin. He was raised up, as Paul says, he had to be raised up for our justification. If he wasn't, then he was someone defeated by sin like every other person is defeated by sin. If he wasn't raised up, then he was someone who death still reigns over and therefore sin still reigns over. This is why the resurrection is necessary. This is why you'll find everywhere in Scripture the commands and the calls to believe it. Because fundamental in that call is a belief in the incorruptibility of Christ. Fundamental to that belief is a belief in the sinlessness of Christ. Fundamental to that belief is a belief in the victory of Christ. Fundamental to the belief of the resurrection is the belief that Jesus himself couldn't be held by the grave because he was never held by sin. You realize, by the way, that Jesus isn't the only person who was ever raised from the dead. There were others who were raised from the dead. We read in the Bible, we read a story about, for example, Lazarus, who famously was called out of the grave by Christ himself. You read about others, uh, Jairus' daughter, who was raised from the dead by Christ. You read in the Old Testament about Elijah raising a widow's son from the dead. But you know, the interesting thing in all of those resurrections is that every one of them were raised again to die again. In other words, their resurrection didn't defeat death. Their resurrection was the resurrection in the same corruptible body that they always had, the very one that they were born with. The resurrected body that was itself still under the curse of sin. 
But Jesus' resurrection was different. In fact, Romans 1 verse 4 says that by the resurrection, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. Or by the resurrection, Jesus proved to be different from everybody else. He proved that he himself was born without sin in a body that wasn't subject to death because it had no sin, in a body that was incorruptible and imperishable because he was the Son of God. He was, Romans 1.4 says, declared to be the Son of God by the power of the resurrection. And so Paul says to us here, if you have no resurrection from the dead, then you have no resurrected Savior. And if you have no resurrected Savior, then you have no one to save you from your sins. You have no one who could save you for eternity. Your faith is futile, Paul says. No other way around it. It's a monumental loss. The resurrection is taken out of the gospel. Our faith is empty because the object of our faith is defeated. It would mean, as I said, he too was defeated by death because he too was defeated by sin. And we would be like having a, a sunken a battleship as the chief defense of our naval forces. Our Fate would be sealed. Paul says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, you're like a bunch of children sitting around playing a tea party, pouring empty pot into empty cups, eating wonderfully empty plates, all on the riches of dainties that don't exist. A salvation that doesn't exist. If you don't have a resurrected Savior. Number three. The third consequence of denying the resurrection. Really just a natural extension of everything he said so far. Is there's no comfort in the loss of loved ones. There's no comfort in the loss of loved ones. Those he says verse 18. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If you have some notion of afterlife that doesn't involve this. Then all those parents and grandparents and Others that you've lost, friends, maybe even spouses, died trusting in a lie. Died trusting in a Savior who himself couldn't even save himself. And they would be dead forever, doomed, without any possibility of ever discovering the truth if the resurrection were false. Paul, in other words, saying this isn't just an academic debate. This is the real world that we live in. This is the world of life and death. This is the world where we try to comfort one another when someone dies. I always find it interesting when you go into a, a situation where someone's passed away or sometimes when you even read about the, the death of some famous person and, and you inevitably encounter those comments, even from sometimes the most um, uh, um, uh, rigid and worldly mind 
What will we hear? Well, they're in a better place. He's in a better place. She's in a better place. What a nebulous statement. I mean, really, any Greek philosopher would have accepted that. Any Hindu would accept that. Or Muslim would accept that, assuming that there was, in their mind, some uh, virtue in their life. They would accept the fact that you die and go on to a different place, sometimes a better place. Any pagan idolater would accept that. That doesn't say anything about your system of salvation or your Savior. But what the Bible demands is that when we face death and when we face the death of a loved one, it demands a verdict from you on what you believe about the resurrection. And if you face death, even the loss of uh, loved ones in death, and you do not accept that there is today a resurrected Savior, if you do not accept the bodily resurrection, you have no hope. Because there's nothing that could ever be done to wipe away the sins of you or your loved ones. If there was never someone who himself was defeated by death. If there was ever someone, I should say. Your lost loved ones are just as hopeless as you are. And every other person is. You might as well cast yourself into the gloom and despair of their loss. And the misery of knowing that you'll never see them again. And the misery of thinking of what they may face. Along with that sort of is the fourth obvious consequence. Denying the future resurrection. Which is no future hope for believers. Paul says in verse 19. If in Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, look, you deny the resurrection. You even take away the central joys of our own life. And we're to be pitied. Take away the resurrection. You take away really the source of joy for the believer. Now, Paul says this against a sort of a the grander paradigm that the Christian life, at least in the New Testament sense, is fundamentally oriented towards another life. In other words, God doesn't intend your life to be lived, consumed with the matters of this world. That is not a way to live, at least in the New Testament sense. That is a, that is a, uh, a downgrade from what God intends for us. As Philippians 3.21 or 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from whom we wait the Savior who will, who will transform uh, the lowly state of our current bodies into the likeness of His glorious body, 3.21 says. This is our orientation as Christians. We are oriented towards another life towards another body, towards another existence, another citizenship. And this is what drives us in what we do. In fact, when you come to the end of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, you go all the way down to verse 58, 
And this is the way Paul summarizes everything about the resurrection that he has said in 57 verses. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, or as the King James says, your toil in the Lord is not in vain. He is laying out here the groundwork for a kind of meaningful Christian life that invests itself in ministry, in labors, in toil, in sacrifice. Why? Because this isn't the life we live for. This is not the life we live for. We don't live for the accumulation of wealth in this life. We don't live for the pleasures and joys of this life. We don't live for the fleeting and and passing indulgences of this life. Unless you don't believe in a resurrection. If you don't believe in a resurrection, you might as well. You might as well. Paul says it back over in verse 31. He speaks about his own ministry and his own sacrifice. He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus the Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, look, I've served the Lord. I've sacrificed at times. I've even been... Uh, faced with wild beasts in the Colosseum at Ephesus. The Lord apparently spared him. But Paul's saying, why would I do that if there's no resurrection? Why, Why would I have any motivation to lay down myself, to sacrifice anything, if I didn't believe in a resurrection? In fact, I would make the natural conclusion, let us just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, the sad reality is that in many ways that sums up the worldview for most Christians. The only obvious conclusion is that they have a deficient view of the resurrection. They have a deficient view of the afterlife. Whatever their view is of the afterlife, it is not as meaningful, it is not as enjoyable, it is not as rich and not as fulfilling as whatever they can consume in this life. And so their whole orientation is towards consumption and spending, and experiencing, and whatever it might be. Eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. It's all about accumulating for their retirement. It's all about spending and indulging on themselves, filling up as many experiences as they can. This is a deficient view of the resurrection. This is what Paul says the resurrection ought to battle against. He says, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. If you really believe everything that he says here, that's what you'll do. 
You will toil, you'll labor, you'll sacrifice, because you know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the momentary light afflictions of this life are not to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that, 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 that awaits us. There's no comparison between that which is coming for us and whatever we could scrape out of this life for ourselves. Not to say, by the way, that the Christian life is all misery and sorrow. It is tremendous joy. Ask anyone who serves the Lord and anyone who lives according to God's principles in their home, in their marriage, in their relationship with their children, in their employment or whatever it is. You ask anyone who truly trusts Christ and what you'll hear from them is that they find tremendous fulfillment. In fact, they would contrast it with the sort of misery that they once knew before they knew Christ in the waywardness and the darkness that they lived in before they knew Christ. Paul's not suggesting that he is miserable in himself, but what he's saying is that his joy doesn't come from the things that he finds in this life. His joy comes from the things that await him in the next. And if you ever confuse that, then you are setting yourself up for grand disappointment. Because now, if you are finding your joy, for example, in the things the Lord blesses you with, when those things are taken away, where does your joy go? It goes away. Now, if you're finding your joy in the husband the Lord's given you, or the wife the Lord's given you, and then that's taken away, where does the joy go? It goes away. The children God gives you, the job God gives you, whatever God, the ministry God gives you. We don't find our joy in those things. We find our joy in the resurrection so that even when we lose all of those things, there is still great joy. This is what Peter says to suffering believers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A resurrection, he says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away and reserved in heaven for you. So you have Christ's resurrection, you have your resurrection, and then Peter immediately says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now you're tested. In other words, you can have joy in trials. You can have joy in abundance because your joy doesn't come from the things that you have in this life. And the reality is, when you get that confused, what you'll do is you'll shrink back from abounding in the work of the Lord. You'll shrink back from serving. You'll shrink back from worshiping. You'll no longer value attending church, worshiping with believers, serving other people, giving and sacrificially to the work of the Lord. You'll no longer value any of those things. It will all be that worldly philosophy, eat, drink, Because tomorrow we die. I'll spend my time, my affections, 
my resources, my money, it'll all be directed towards me. The sad thing is once Satan begins to dupe you into that mode of life, and he has you where he wants you, then he begins to strip away all those things that you thought you found joy in. All those things you replaced the Lord with, they're stripped away. And now you have no joy in them and you have no joy in the Lord. You're miserable. You're miserable. You know what Paul found? Paul found a different route to joy. It's a route that found all of his joy in the hope of the resurrection. All of his anticipation in the riches that come from that. And all of his motivation then to invest and invest and invest. And this was a man who could find joy even in the midst of trial. This was a man who could sacrifice and sacrifice investing in the future. And from that sacrifice find even more joy because of the hope of the resurrection. You do away the resurrection, you do away with all that. You may as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. The good news in all this, Paul says in verse 20, is we don't have to give up any of that. We don't have to give up real joy. We don't have to give up real salvation. We don't have to give up comfort from lost loved ones. We don't have to give up scripture. We don't have to give up anything. Because as he says in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. A kind of first fruits, he says, of the resurrection. In other words, the, re- the way that you and I know that this is coming to us, the way that we can have confidence that we're going to be resurrected in our bodies and be together with the Lord, the way we can know that it's going to happen is that it already has. It has already happened. God has already raised someone from the dead. And he is now physically in his body with God in heaven. And the reason that you and I can have confidence in that is because God has already given us a sort of a down payment, a sort of first fruits to bolster your confidence and to inspire your worship. If you believe, if you believe. This is the demand, though, for everyone who's here today. That you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that he's been raised. The sad thing is that some of you attend here on Easter service. You'll go back to your families today. You'll have your meal and your lunch. And you'll go through all of the rituals of spirituality all the while not believing any of that. You don't believe the resurrection. You think it's a myth. You think it's just some sort of story made up. Or maybe you think it's too good to be true. I don't know what, but whatever it is, you don't believe. And it's evident you don't believe because of the way you live. Because your life reflects everything against what Paul says a believer is. You can say it all you want. But Paul says, if you believe this, 
you will be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. Our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave here still in that misery. Still just racked not only with doubts, but worse than that, with guilt and fear over facing the Lord one day. That you wouldn't leave here on Easter Sunday having heard the proclamation of the message of the resurrected Savior. And still unchanged by it. You'll be changed by it. If you believe it. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of changing your mind. And changing your life. And giving your heart to the Lord. I'm going to close in a word of prayer here in just a moment. I'm going to invite you to do that. We don't have an altar call here, but there's an invitation. That you would believe in this resurrected Savior. And because of that, have your sins forgiven. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful this morning for the reminder, for the challenge, for the gift of salvation. We are blessed to be able to leave here with our hearts filled again with the confidence even as we gather around dinner tables today as we celebrate maybe together with family we bow our heads in prayer and we give thanks for the resurrected Christ may we give thanks with full meaning in our hearts and worship of him ready to declare our citizenship is in heaven and we await and hope a Savior who's going to transform our bodies into the likeness of His glorious, resurrected body. Lord, it's our joy to confess that today. It's our joy to believe that. It's our joy to proclaim that. And we do so in worship and honor to His name.